is Palm Sunday. We commemorate the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem as he was on his way to the cross. And last week, Pastor JP preached on what it actually means to be a friend of the bridegroom when we declare that he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And this leads us perfectly to this Palm Sunday, because Palm Sunday isn't just a day of like hip, hip, hooray, Jesus is here, but it sets off the clock. It is the final countdown that begins this week, this Passion Week, as it unfolds every day, bringing Jesus closer to what he was born into this earth to do, and that is to die. So let's open up together to John chapter 12 verses. We're going to go through verse 20 to 28. If you have your physical Bible with you, I always encourage you to, um, to use your physical Bible. Otherwise, I have um, some slides for you as well, and I'll be reading from the ESV. So John chapter 12 verses 20 to 28. All right, it reads, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Let's pause here just for a second. This is right after Jesus has come through the city gates. And all of a sudden, there's a stir and a commotion in the city. And everybody gets to hear, this is a guy called Jesus, and he's here. We've heard of his miracles. We've heard of his teaching and preaching. He's here. Let's go and see if we can get an audience with him. And so among those people were the Greeks. Now, for people who were all gathered for the feast, there are people from all different backgrounds, but people who were from a Greek background is most likely people that were more influential. And so it's like, The big dogs come to these fishermen disciples and ask them, hey, can we meet with your rabbi? And all of a sudden, Philip and Andrew, they're like, oh, he wants to meet with our guy. That's right. Hold on for a second. Let me see if we can pencil you in, right? And then they scurry off to find Jesus, right? And so they're feeling like, all right, this is it. Now things are going to get interesting. Now we're going to go big. Finally, after three years of doing these small itinerant ministry opportunities, now is the time that we've been waiting for. Jesus is going to make it onto the big stage. And now this is our time. This is our moment of fame. Right? And so Andrew and Philip were probably very excited with this news. And they went off and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so they're like, yes, I knew it. This is the time he's going to be lifted up. And then Jesus makes this hard pivot right after saying that the son of man to be glorified. Then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so he redefines what it means 
that the Son of Man will be glorified. What it does it mean to be lifted up? It means to die. And then after that, immediately after that, this is a surprise. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. In other words, this is newsflash. I'm going to die. And if you serve me, you're going to be there too. You're going to die as well. And then Jesus finishes off saying, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so just to give you a little bit of context where this passage is coming in from, the book of John makes very evident the increasing divergence of Jesus' expectations and the disciples' expectations. They grow further and further apart. What they believe is about to unfold during this week. And so this book of John makes increasingly stark, increasingly noticeable the distance between the expectations that Jesus has and the disciples have. As the disciples seem to be gearing up for fame, for notoriety, for power, they're jostling for positions of influence, they're fighting over who will be the greatest in the kingdom, of heaven, we see Jesus taking in clearer and talking in clearer and clearer terms about the fate that awaits him. Because as Jesus walks into Jerusalem, it's very clear that Jesus is on a mission, but not the mission that the disciples think he is on. The disciples thought he was walking straight in to his moment of political coronation, a moment of military might, a moment of power. When in fact, Jesus was walking straight into his moment of lowest servanthood, deepest humility, and even death. It was a road that didn't lead straight into the halls of political power in Rome, nor the influential monuments in the Greek culture. It was a road that led straight into a little hill called Golgotha, outside the city gates, where the lowest of lows, the discarded, the condemned of society where they were tortured and held up, literally held up, hoisted up, glorified for all to see and for all to scorn. When the disciples looked down this road into Jerusalem, they were picturing a throne. But when Jesus looked down this road, he was already seeing betrayal. He was already feeling the bloody lashes on his back. He was already feeling the crowns of crown of thorns on his head and the nails on his hands and on his feet. Because we just like the disciples, if we could have it our way, we'd always 10 out of 10 times, we choose victory without death. We would choose glory without suffering. We would cho- we would choose resurrection without crucifixion. But God's ways are higher. He chose victory through death and glory through suffering. He rose as he conquered as a conquering king in resurrection after crucifixion. Do you know what the the one thing that will qualify you for resurrection is? You need to be dead, right? That's the one qualifier. You don't qualify for resurrection if you're still alive. And so Jesus 
as he leads the way for his disciples, he chooses victory through death and glory through suffering. Now, I can't remember exactly where it was where I heard this being shared. But someone, you know, said, Jesus didn't die to himself so that you don't have to. Jesus died to himself so you would know how. It's not like, all right, Jesus paid it and we're scot-free. And now the life that we live is completely dissociated from the example that was set before us by Jesus. But Jesus, he is our forerunner. He is the one who has paved a way and shown us in very real terms what it looks like to live a life that is a life crucified. So let me ask you this question today as we go into Palm Sunday and as we meditate on Jesus's definition of what does it mean for the son of man to be glorified? What does it look like for us on this road to the cross with Jesus? What does it mean to live a crucified life? Because that's what we've been called to do as Christians who follow Jesus. The first thing that we are called to do before anything else is you stop following your own path and you follow Jesus where he leads. It sounds very obvious, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound very like, of course, like what else could it be? It's so obvious and so simple, but it is imperative that I start off with this because there is a growing trend in Christianity about being influential and having significance, being relevant and even being noble and inspiring and making a difference without underscoring that ultimately Christianity is about following Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. We follow a rabbi. We follow our shepherd. You stop following your own path and you choose to follow Jesus where he leads. This is often not what we want, right? I wish I could say that the Christian walk was roses and rainbows and unicorns, but it isn't always that way. And that is because we are following in his nail pierced footsteps. And those footsteps don't always lead us to stage or fame or notoriety, although sometimes they might, but sometimes these footsteps lead us to the desert where he'll teach us to lean on our beloved. Sometimes those footsteps will lead us to a hidden place, far away from the applause of men where we will serve without acknowledgement in ways that only Jesus knows and only Jesus will remember. Sometimes those footsteps lead us straight into the storm where we will cry out for Jesus to save us. All we know All that is guaranteed is that we will be with Jesus. And that's it. No matter where he leads us. There's a yieldedness. And there is a surrender to the Christian walk. An understanding that this is no longer your life. This is no longer my life. That we all live on borrowed breath. That following Christ means you pick up your cross and you follow him. Wherever he may lead. In the words of Paul... It is now not you who live, but Christ in you. That is the reality that we walk out day in and day out as we follow our shepherd. You learn to trust 
the leading and the cues from Jesus, your good shepherd, your faithful friend, your mighty defender. You live for someone else on this side of the cross. Someone who has plans and a future for you. Someone who knows better than you. Someone who, according to Psalm 139, knit you in your mother's womb and knows every one of your days before any of them came to be. Did you know God planned March 28, year 2021 in your life? He planned this day. He planned for you to be here. He has ordained every day in your life. This is also someone who, according to Matthew 6, he knows what you need before you even ask him. Someone who, according to Romans 8, works all things, even the terrible things in your life, works all things for your good. And for some of you, some of you who follow Jesus, not just within these four walls, but also outside of these four walls, come Monday morning, Jesus will lead you straight into a classroom full of children that have never been shown the love of Christ. Some of you, Jesus will lead you straight into the marketplace and boardrooms and offices where the light of Christ is so desperately needed. For some of you, Jesus will lead you to meet with a hurting friend or struggling family member or someone who is sick. All that is guaranteed for us simply as we follow in the steps of Jesus is that he will be there with us. The second thing what it means for us to live a crucified life, what it means to follow our Savior in his footsteps. Just like he did in the passage that we read, you need to start asking the Father, and this is very important, is this my cup? And this is what I mean by this. And I'll be very careful in how I approach this because our flesh, okay, maybe not your flesh, my flesh for sure, is looking for loopholes. Anything but to die, right? So I'm looking for loopholes left and right. So I'll be very careful in how I approach this. Because everything in me will want to escape and exempt me from submitting myself to his leadership. Let me ask you this question. Did you know Jesus didn't heal every single sick and demonized person in the town that he was there at all the time? Sometimes Jesus, quote unquote, held back from healing or deliverance or breakthrough because number one, it could be people's lack of faith. That was the case in Nazareth. Sometimes in order to increase someone's faith and ask for a bit more wrestle for them to be strengthened in their faith. And sometimes it just wasn't God's timing. There were times when Jesus, instead of responding to the never ending demands for food and teaching and healing and deliverance and miracles, he would go by himself to mountain to pray. Now, if you were monitoring his productivity, wouldn't you say, hey, Jesus, in the time that you went up that mountain to pray, you actually could have healed 20 more people. I think you need to use your time a bit more wisely because you're you're missing people that you could be reaching right now. Have you also ever asked yourself, man, if Jesus was able to do this much ministry in three years, just three years, why didn't he do ministry for all 33 years? Right? If he started in his teens, like all of Israel will be saved by now. Right? If he started way, way earlier, why did he procrastinate? Why did he wait for the last three years? Or you could also say, why didn't he live to be 600 years old 
and use every waking moment to do his ministry. This is the way that we normally operate because we want to squeeze as much out as we can from the time that we're given. But the reason behind the mystery of why Jesus did ministry for only three years, and even then, he probably could have squeezed in a little more, right? The reason that we see that Jesus does that is found in John 5, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. In other words, Jesus only did what he saw his Father doing. If God wasn't heal- God the Father wasn't healing, then he wasn't healing. If God was meeting him in a place of prayer, he was meeting him in a place of prayer. It doesn't mean that Jesus was like a passive robot. It means that he was an intimate partnership and submission to God the Father's timing like a trusting son to his beloved father. Does that make sense? The reason why Jesus didn't go nuts in ministry every waking moment he had, and he only talked with the people that he was called to talk to, he only healed the people that he was called to heal in that moment, it was because he was simply following what God the Father was doing in that moment. In some instances in life, We will do everything to avoid something painful and difficult that is actually ordained for us. Where it is your cup to partake in. And we will do everything in our might to sidestep that. And in other instances of our lives, we will presumptuously take on a burden that isn't ours to carry. It often fluctuates between seasons, cases, and personalities. I can say... Just honestly, my personality leanings and my tendencies are more on that I tend to take on more burdens than I'm supposed to carry. And that is not noble in the Father's eyes. That is walking in disobedience from God's ways. He's saying, Susie, what are you doing with that cup? That wasn't yours, right? That's disobedience to the Father. And there will be times where he will give me something to carry and everything in me will want to, you know, push it to someone else. This is why it's so important for us to constantly be dialoguing with the Holy Spirit, a Father who knows what is ordained for you, and ask him, Father, is this my cup I'm called to carry? Is this the cup that I'm called to drink of? I need to say this very clearly because often in Christian circles, we work this angle where if you're not miserable and burnt out and your family's falling apart and your health is like all, all over the place, then you're not really loving and serving Jesus. You know, like in some Christian circles, we can work this angle where you just dump loads on people. You dump cups on people and they're meant to carry that. And that's not an obedience to God. And so this is why I need to say this so clearly. We need to be in alignment, in perfect partnership and submission to the Father's will for us. There's going to be seasons where God is going to ask you to rest. There's going to be seasons where he's going to ask you to sow. There's going to be seasons where he asks you to speak, seasons where he asks you to remain silent. This is all from Ecclesiastes. There's always going to be a season for it, but we need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit in knowing what is ours to carry. 
Now, let me make this a little bit even more personal just from my own experience. I was debating whether to talk about this or not, but I think it's okay for me to. About a few years ago, our whole church went through a massive transition. And during that time, because I knew my personal tendencies to take on more than what God was calling me to take on, I had to take a very long, hard look at my life. I had to go, like, disconnect from everything and go into the place of prayer and earnestly ask the Lord, Lord, are you calling me to stay at Nephili or to go? And I needed to be so honest with God because if I stayed at Nephili, apart from God's will and God's grace over my life, that would have been disobedience. That wouldn't have helped anybody. That would have just hurt me and burnt me out. And so I remember during this time, there are many brothers and sisters who came around me and who would ask me, you know, do you feel like you've gotten clarity from the Lord? Because if this is what God is calling you to do, then go for it. We're behind you. But if this, is what, if this isn't what God is calling you to do, we release you and we bless you. And I needed people around me to remind me of that, that God will not allow me. And my, this community won't allow me to carry burdens that I'm not supposed to carry. And so this freed me up in such a way where when I went to the place of prayer, I wasn't thinking, man, I have to stay here. If I don't stay here, what's going to happen with the church, right? And I'd be doing the service out of compulsion and out of guilt and out of, oh man, like in Korean you say like, right? It's like, if I don't do it, who's going to pick up the slack kind of feeling, right? And I've grown up with that sentiment a lot. And this is my natural tendency. And so this is why I needed to be even more vigilant when it came to praying about this. And I needed to be so sober minded. God, if this is you and this is your will and this is your timing, then there's going to be grace for me. If this isn't, then you're going to show me a way out. And I needed to go through the season of praying whether this was my cup to drink of. If there is ever a day, I don't know if this will ever happen, but if there's ever a day where God leads me away from New Philly and says that my time here is done, then I know that I will grieve, I will mourn, I will cry, I will hurt and feel the loss and agony, but then I will follow. Whatever my cup is, my prayer is, Lord, give me the grace to drink it. Sometimes walking away can be a harder cup to drink. And so this is so important for us to take so seriously. Praying to God, what is my cup? What is my burden to carry? If out of a desire to help or out of a feeling of guilt or compulsion, I take on more than what I'm supposed to carry, then that is not walking in obedience with the Lord. So it's important for us. Pray into what is your cup to drink. And lastly, you might lose all things when you walk this road to the cross, but you will gain Jesus. You might lose all things, but you will gain Jesus. This is the scariest, but most glorious part of the gospel. Because living the Christian life requires the highest cost, but yields the highest reward. And as much as I wish I could water down 
this part and make it more palatable for you, a little bit easier to chew on. The Bible is very unapologetic about this. In fact, God seems downright proud about this part of the Bible. He says it over and over and over again. He says, you will lose your life, but you'll get me. You'll lay everything down, but you'll have rewards in heaven. Over and over and over again, book after book, writer after writer, this is the promise of God. You might lose all things in this life, but you will gain Jesus. Because a Christian walk, it isn't just giving God a day of your week or a tenth of your income or a gesture of charity here and there that you give to him. It requires nothing less than giving your life to him. Nothing more and nothing less. We squirm and we negotiate and we try to haggle our weight out of giving him less than our all. But the truth of the matter is that the Christian walk is one of laying down your life. That Jesus in all his power, in all his glory could live in you. And that is the beautiful, most glorious part about the gospel. It requires everything of us. And yet it gives us everything in return. So on this Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, where we see him walking straight into danger and persecution and death. But even before he was ever arrested, even before he was ever tried or flogged or nailed to the cross, he had already laid down his life. He was already living a crucified life. When tempted with a shortcut to power by Satan in the desert, when he served the marginalized and quote-unquote unimportant and fed the multitudes, when Peter said, Jesus would never suffer, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the things in the mind, in the mind of God. When the crowds wanted to enthrone him because of the miracles that he had done, and he consistently slip away to a quiet place to pray. When he knelt down to wash the feet of those who would betray him hours later, he was already living a crucified life that took him straight to the cross. And we as people who are called to follow him are called to do the same. This whole passage ends with verse 31 saying, Now is a judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, literally glorified, hoisted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And that is what he has done. This is what Passion Week is about. This is what the gospel is about. As we trust the Savior that calls us to follow him, as we trust the Savior who calls us to lay down our lives, pick up our cross, and follow him, We need to trust his intentions. We need to trust his heart and know that the reward is far greater than anything that this life could offer to us. Now we can declare in the words of Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, And the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'm going to ask, you know, our um, insan to come back up. We're going to take a time to pray.
want us to take some time to meditate today as we're going into this passion week where we don't go into mindlessly. We don't go into it thinking, well, I've done this before. I've read the passages before. Didn't we go through this last year? But asking for God to give us a fresh revelation of the gospel message. Their hearts would be tenderized by his Holy Spirit. That even if we've heard it a hundred times before, that the gospel will look so beautiful in our eyes. That the joy that is set before us would look so beautiful, so glorious that the cost, the cost that it will require us, it would not compare. That God would remind us that he is worthy, not just of parts of our lives, not just of parts of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but he is worthy of it all. A God who he himself has given everything that we need. Everything that he had, he laid it down. Everything that was a price, everything that was of value, he laid it down. That men would be drawn to him. That the lost would come home. That sons and daughters would be brought into adoption. He is ultimately the one who paid the high price. And we, as Christ followers, it is our joy to do the same. And so let's take a moment just to quiet our hearts and simply pray this prayer to yourself. Father, would you soften my heart to the beauty and the simplicity of your gospel? May this be what Christianity is about. Following in your nail-pierced footsteps. second thing I'd like us to pray for today is for grace to lay those things down that are so hard to lay down. And all of us have it somewhere in our hearts. All of us have an area of our heart that we find it so hard to lay down before him. It could be simply that we don't trust him with it. It could be that we don't think he cares about this area of our life. It could be out of a sense of hopelessness that we don't want to invite him into those areas. It could be out of a multitude of reasons. But let's pray for grace for us to be able to surrender and to do it with joy in our hearts. Knowing that this is something that matters to him. Knowing that he knows how costly it is for us to lay down. And it is something that gives him great pleasure and great joy.
lastly, let's pray that God would open up our eyes to the glory of the reward that we have in him. We don't have the self-denial and the discipline that it takes for us to lay things that are so costly down without knowing deep down inside that we're receiving something better. And we need God to open up our spiritual eyes that we would see that. Otherwise, it's so hard to let go. Otherwise, it's impossible for us to fully trust and fully surrender. And so let's ask that God would open up our spiritual eyes, that we would see him for who he is. A God who did not spare even his own son, that we would be found in him. A God who's full of mercy, full of compassion, whose kindness and tender love towards us chases us down over and over again. A God who is greater than our sins, our God that is greater than our faults, a God who's filled with hope and promise and new beginnings. with Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 as you keep your eyes closed. It says this, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you for the sureness of your promise. We thank you for the testimony of saints that have gone before us who have laid down their lives to follow you wherever you lead. Many of us find ourselves here. Even today, we find ourselves here because of someone else who laid down their life to let us know about you. Some of us have experienced such grace and such mercy in your reaching through someone who laid down their life to reach us. And so we give you glory. We give you our gratitude today. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we pick up our cross and we follow you every step of the way, would you give give us grace? Would you give us power? Would you give us mercy through your Holy Spirit to walk this walk that you've already laid out for us. A walk that leads us through suffering to glory. A road that leads us through death into eternal life. May we walk this walk 
with the power and the grace that can only come through your Holy Spirit. May you be our ultimate boast. May you be all of our hope and all of our glory. A God who embraced the costs and the humiliation and the death that we would be brought near. We thank you, Father, for today. We praise you. We give you thanks. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.